National University understands military student needs and offers dedicated support through the Veterans Center. Scholarships available. Visit nu.edu slash Project. On this episode of the Panjway Podcast, we are joined by Seth Price. Seth was an all-source intelligence analyst with 1st Battalion, 64th Armor Regiment, before being assigned to Bravo Company 164 as our company-level intelligence analyst. Seth's unique job and his time in headquarters platoon offers some unique insights, and it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Episode 6 of the Panjway Podcast starts now. So we're sitting here with Seth Price, who was uh, one of our, I guess, attachments, right, Seth? Uh, you can you can call me a pogue. That's, <laughs> that's what I was. <laughs> oh, but you're you're out there cutting your teeth with the rest of us. We won't we won't do you that bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was the I was one of the attached Intel guys. I came from the S two shop and got dropped off one day in the bayonet training room and they're like here's your new intel guy and everyone looked around like what (laughs) (laughs) well and to our listeners and we kind of mentioned this in episode one it was pretty unusual to have uh, a company level um intel guy just like was weird for us to have a pa and all these other things so before we go into that because it's actually a pretty fascinating story about how you ended up at the company and what was supposed to be the way your job worked and what actually happened just give us a brief intro to yourself, man. How you how did you end up joining the army? Uh, how did you choose your MOS? Um, and what brought you to Sperwangar? Or or you can I guess you can leave that story off. How you got to Bravo Company? <laughs> <laughs> so I graduated college in 2009, and the economy had tanked. Nobody's finding jobs. I was either going to go to graduate school or find a job and. Uh, at the time, I didn't think graduate school was the right thing for me to do, so I'm out looking for jobs, and I had an army recruiting station like around the corner from the condo I lived in, and I walked in one day. I was like, I need a job, so I sat down, and the recruiter had, you know, they went through their spiel, and when I took the ASVAB, they're like, okay, you, you can pretty much do any job you want. They had intel analysts. I was like, you know, that sounds promising and it looks like something that would have a maybe a good career future so that's what i i went with after the uh train up uh, through basic training and then then ait i found my way down to fort stewart which i mean luckily it was it wasn't that far from where i grew up so i i could go home on the weekends and take advantage of being so close to florida when word got out that we were going to head to Afghanistan, they frantically came up with all these these training opportunities for us, and one of them was the company intelligence support team. And with team what that really being is the key word there. To, yeah, team. <laughs> team of one. What? Yeah, team of one. So what what that training was is pretty much our AIT condensed down to a one week course, and it's meant honestly for the infantrymen or somebody from one of the line companies to come through this training and figure out how to do intel work on a really basic level. So they took four of us. They just 
lined us up and they're like, oh, you're going to a alpha company and you're going to Bravo company. I was like, so I get there and you know, they introduced me to the training room. Um, and then the first sergeant and, and then, uh, captain kitchen. And, you know, I'd, I'd met all of them before throughout, you know, my, my normal job, but now I'm joining their ranks. So it's very different. It's you're working in an S2 shop. It's very lax. There's no, no military courtesies given to any of the other, other guys you work with. You may stand at parade rest for an, an NCO. You may not, but infantry land, we all know that's very different, especially in garrison. So, so it, was, it took a little bit of time getting used to, but man, I am so glad I got thrown into bayonet company. What was it like being at that in that headquarters platoon? I mean, everyone else is an infantryman. I don't even, except for maybe uh, you know the combo guy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now. Um, Olive. Olive, yeah, Olive. Yeah, but working in headquarters, it, it's it's different because everybody has their their job, and you at a company level, you're probably the only guy doing your job. So, like, Olive could reach out to me for help with some combo stuff, but I'm looking at the radios like, I, I don't know what you're asking me to do. And <laughs> if I if I asked him to do some intel work, he'd be looking and like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. So we we each had our, our responsibilities, and, like, we were trusted to, to do those. And that was... I mean, there's a lot of freedom. Like you set your hours, but you better get your work done. Right. And and then a lot of times, well, you're, well, especially on deployment, you're you're, you're never done. So, but before we deployed, um, you know, all this information is trickling in about where we're going. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were hearing before we left? Um, especially from the Intel side, cause you were, you were hearing stuff that even probably the platoon sergeants and stuff weren't really hearing. Yeah. Uh, so we knew pretty quickly, you know, we're, Hey, we're going to Afghanistan. We're going to Kandahar. And then it, it took a little bit longer to get more details. And that once we did find out that, Hey, you're going to, to Panjway. I mean, commander, you know, captain kitchen, his, uh, his eyes got wide cause his brother was there. So he's like, we're going to do a conference call with my brother. We're going to pick his brain. We're going to send him some emails, get him to provide as much as he could. So we did that. And, I mean, it's drinking from the fire hose and having no combat experience at the time. It's like, I don't even know what to ask uh, or focus on when when he provides this information. Luckily, Captain Kitching had that connection. And he understood what the Afghan fight was. Nobody that I was aware of in our battalion had even done an Afghan deployment. They had all been focused on Iraq for the previous Yeah, the, like, the leadership, years. especially. You know, obviously, yeah. in the NCOs, there were some folks who had been, but not many, even yeah. in that world, yeah. you know. It was, so, it was very few that had yeah. been to Afghanistan. And, like in the company, there's only like three people that had been. Yeah. So yeah, it's 
it's eye-opening to to all the guys who are like okay um afghanistan that's it's gonna be different than what we're used to i mean it was a mechanized infantry battalion yeah yeah we've, we've talked a lot about that and we've gone into a lot about like that switch in mentality yeah. for everybody um, it's, a, so, it's a big switch. Yeah, it was a it was a big shift for us to have to make for sure. Nobody at Fort Stewart, no, no unit had even been there before from Fort Stewart. So maybe some aviation, but we we had no contact with them. But any of the actual line units across the division, none of them had gone. So who do you reach out to locally for that that expertise, that knowledge, and understanding? How much use was the the previous unit? Were were they providing a whole lot of info to you, or so we did start getting some emails from the unit while we were still in garrison, and it was just, hey, look, this is you know the type of op tempo. This is the the area we're at, um, and pretty much really basic stuff that, hey, you know, this is what you you'd expect when you get here. Um, they, I know they provided a breakdown of what Spurwangar was like. They did pass that. The living conditions were pretty good, so we were like, okay, that's that's good to know. Right. Yay, Spurwangar. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were one of the few that wasn't surprised when you got there and saw how nice well, it was. Well, I mean, you hear what they say, but it's like, how real is it until you get there? Sure. And... I know I was one of the, I was on the first helicopter after we got to CAF. I was on the first helicopter into Spurwangar. And we get there and we're like, oh my gosh, this is nice. This is big. This is, this, this is big. And like just an infantry company is going to be here. (laughs) Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This is, this is amazing. So yeah, they, they kind of gave us a heads up of what it was like. And then, I mean, really. There's not much you can do with that because you're you're getting that information and then you're you're going on your pre-deployment leave. You're getting checking the box, all the different stuff you have to do. So you're drinking from that fire hose and trying to do your best and get ready. I mean, I know this was your second deployment, Luke, and mm-hmm. it was my first. It was so many people in that company. It was their first deployment. Yeah. It was a really it's, young company. It was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's probably Captain Kitchen's sixth or seventh deployment, but, you know, he's he's a different animal. I think it was his third. <laughs> <laughs> third that he's willing to tell you about. Yeah, right. <laughs> very, very interesting workup. I mean, going through NTC with the, the company was fun. I really got to know the company leadership a lot during that xo tim boss we hit it off pretty pretty well and at ntc and we like we've been we've been close friends ever since so once we're there um you know we start to settle into what in the in the military we call battle rhythm which is kind of like your day-to-day grind you know information comes in information goes out most civilians normal people would just call it their routine but we had to make it sound army so we call it battle rhythm (laughs) um can you kind of describe what your kind of day-to-day routine was as an Intel guy? Like where were you getting your information? What did you do with it? Like how much, like what was it kind of like? So I would get a ton of emails every day that I'd have to sift through, 
find the relevant information uh, in reporting. I would get um, information set down from our battalion headquarters, from brigade, that I'd have to sift through, find what's relevant for our exact AO. Because they wouldn't always send it, hey, this is Spurwing Gar related, this is for Bayonet Company. They would send stuff um, kind of for the battalion in general. And so sifting through that, finding out what was important for us and for the operations we were doing was like one of the first things I would do in the morning. I'd go through, I'd get up early before breakfast, I'd be in there and I'd be reading through emails and trying to figure out what what was important for that day. And I mean, I'd spend the rest of the day going through that, finding out, you know, different different threat levels of the different villages that we were operating in so i could you know provide that to you guys before operations i would do threat assessments of those i would build out the i would track our sigax what what does sigax stand for all the significant activity or events that happened so anytime you guys were in a firefight oh there's a sigax firefight and um, I would have to track that because our higher headquarters would want that information. Yeah. So for you as an Intel guy, you know, I got two questions. One is when we would get these like big bumps, like something would come down the pipeline of, uh, you know, a high value target or uh, IED compound, something that would come down that we had to work on really quickly. What did that look like for you? And then also what did the big operations look like for you in terms of your job? So, Things like a IED compound or, you know, high value target, a lot of times it would come over a phone call. Hey, look, this is something somebody somebody at a much higher level found and we got good solid reporting on this. We need you to send somebody or send a, a patrol out and hit this compound or find this person. And if it was that important they would call because an email could get lost because i mean when you get hundreds of emails thousands maybe a day that's that stuff can get missed so would would these calls always come from like one two three or would they come from anywhere that could feed us the information it was usually from one two three or from the brigade okay cool yeah um a lot most of them would come from one two three so yeah. over at Zangabad, their two shop would call or their three shop would call and say, hey, look, hey, um, we're tasking you guys to go do this. And their proper response is, Roger, moving out. <laughs> so, <laughs> How many times was their response was, uh, fuck off, that's stupid? <laughs> Probably not as many as we should have. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm sure there's some of those some of those operations they sent us on that were kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. Almost all. Like, like I remember one, it, we it got it got uh, fed to us because there was some article in some newspaper. Oh yeah, that's come up many times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay, you you Ooh. guys remember obviously. Oh, yeah. it, not to go into detail, but just because something was in a newspaper doesn't mean it's real. Yeah. But it was in the New York and... Times, Seth. 
Just because it's in the news doesn't mean it's real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And doesn't mean that we should action on it because how relevant or how reliable and how current is their reporting? Well, and more yeah. importantly, the Taliban can read too. So if there's an article saying that yeah. there's something here and there's a pretty good guess we're going to walk there, there's almost a certainty yeah. that it's going to be a trap, as we found out. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you can't you you can say no as much as you want but when somebody who outranks you says hey you're gonna do it well you're gonna do it yeah for eventually sure. that's why it was awesome being a pilot because i could say no because <laughs> <laughs> they weren't gonna climb up in that helicopter and fly it for me yeah. What what about the big operations then? Because you had, I'm assuming you had a little bit more, you know, uh, forewarning about those. You could actually take time to build up intelligence and things like that. For some of them, yeah. Um, like when we did the the clearing of the horn, there was quite a bit of intelligence development into that. Like mm -hmm. we knew. Okay, so typically, intel is supposed to drive operations. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It's an army. It's it's in a field manual. It is it's doctrine. <laughs> um, it doesn't always work that way though. A lot of times somebody says, "Hey, we're going to do this operation. Let's find some intel to back it up." Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think clearing the horn, as as necessary as that would be to go through and clear these villages and push the Taliban back. Unless there's intel saying, hey, look, this is a village where the Taliban's hanging out a lot at and they have stashes here, we're really just pushing through to push through. Yeah. So having having to go and now find the intel of, okay, what villages should we focus on? It's, it's harder to provide the intel for those types of operations when you're doing it after they've already said, hey, you're going to clear this, this area. Sure. So... It, it really comes down to not providing intel of where we're going to clear and find things of value in, in clearing, but let's get a threat assessment of of the IED networks so, or let's figure out where the IED belts are, what, what is an area they're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. And that would give us the better situational awareness when we're actually pushing through. And talking about clearing the horn, when Captain Kitching told me, hey, look, you're coming with us. I, I sat down, I thought for a second, I was like, what am I going to do out there? <laughs> and, and he told me, he's like, look, I want you to be the best intel analyst you can be. And the only way you're going to be proficient at it is if you know what the infantryman goes through. Sure. So you're going to go out there and you're going to be the best intel analyst on the field that day and you're going to enjoy it. So I, I was like, all right, let me get ready. Yeah. And I went and man, I had a, I had a quite the experience out there clearing the horn, but that that's the, the type of, of stuff that Intel operationally down at the tip of the spear, it's very different than, than what a lot of people think, oh, you're Intel analysts, you're, you're so far removed and you, you don't really know what the guys are doing. 
And for a lot of Intel analysts, that's reality because they've never been there. They yeah. don't know what the actual infantryman is going through. Well, that had to be invaluable experience because the horn was a hell of a fight for our company. And especially yeah. for you guys up there in the, you know, in the northern part of our clearing element. Yeah. So that had to be pretty invaluable experience because then when you see that intel, because this was your first time really going on a, a serious patrol, right? And for yeah, the I'd, I'd been on several shorter ones, but mm -hmm. this is definitely the first one where we actually went out and, hey, this is going to be several days. Yeah, and, and we, knew, we knew we were going to get into the thick of it too. Yeah, so and, that, and hey, this isn't your AO either. We're pushing yeah. you out past your AO through, what was it, like, two three other companies aos mm -hmm. and you're gonna go clear it all, all yeah right. <laughs> yeah exactly it's gonna be fun <laughs> so we actually haven't really had the chance to talk about the horn much uh on the podcast so give me a couple of minutes and i'm going to kind of set the stage and then i want you okay. to tell us your perspective on the story sure. um so as we've already briefly discussed you know this was a massive battalion operation or is it brigade level uh i want to say it's a brigade mandated operation but yeah. it was but the battalion was the nuts it was and bolts at the it. battalion level yeah so this yeah. is a massive battalion level operation to clear essentially the tip of the horn of panjway which curtis yeah. and i've already described in previous episodes um our company out of our three platoons the the second platoon stayed on the cop and they ran trucks back and forth and doing different kinds of admin stuff and they had to keep up and we had to keep an element on spare one guard, obviously. And also they did yeah. the AOP missions and th things like that. But first platoon was the southernmost element for the battalion. And we were uh, just frog marching along the really open ground and sparsely kind of distributed villages right before the Registan. Just to the mm -hmm. south of us was our trucks, which Curtis was in that element. Lucky duck. Well, maybe not so lucky Whoa, since you had that ID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but first platoon was, <clears throat> we were in these uh, these sparsely populated villages, big, long, open stretches. You, you know, And third platoon and headquarters uh, attached to third platoon was to our north, usually a couple 300 meters. Um, and then obviously as the, the, as the horn narrowed, we got funneled closer and closer together. And so that the last day, I think we actually ended up linking up with third yeah. and pushing through. Um, but to set the stage even further, for us as first platoon, clearing the horn was an entirely different experience because it was what a six day operation. Does that sound right? Something like that. Yeah. So right in the, those middle two or three days, you guys were taking contact every day. That middle day of the operation where it was really bad, um, you guys took a lot of contact and you got into some really really heavy firefights, and we in the south even if we were only a couple hundred meters away, and we've talked about this a lot too, about how just uh, that distance can make such a huge difference in your experience of a, of an operation or a patrol. Yeah. But we were more or less just sitting there watching all this go on, you know, from a distance. And the closest we came on that middle day, um, we tried to push into you guys. Uh, but by the time we got there, you guys had already bunkered down and set up an OP and a, and a, um, and a great putt. And, the, the day was pretty much wrapped up because I remember that's when I walked into the OP. I think that's the picture, the really famous picture everybody's got their IVs <laughs> in and stuff. Everybody's yeah. dehydrated. And then we separated from you and went back to the south, and that was more or less how it continued for the rest of that clearing operation. So, for and then down the south with the trucks, you guys, Curtis, what were you all doing? 
I mean, it's pretty even less eventful there, other than getting my shit rocked by that IED. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what we do is we just kind of drove parallel to you guys. We were in that that riverbed, um, which was sometimes it was kind of quick sandy, but like for the most part, it was fine. We just drove up the riverbed. And as you guys needed supplies, MREs, whatever, you would usually detach an element, come to the edge of the riverbed. We would drive as close as we could get, give you a handoff of supplies, and then we would kind of continue to parallel you. Um, I believe at nights we would get up into the horn with you and provide security for the the overnight spots. But for the most part, we literally just drove a whole bunch of trucks full of supplies. Um, That way, you know, we could resupply you. Um, Probably the most interesting things that happened was the IED. And we did like a couple C-130 drops, which were kind of cool. Yeah, those were cool. Um, but the, the, there was no contact with us other than the IED. Um, no no firefights, nothing like that. So we were, we were mostly just listening on the radio. It, it actually kind of sucked to that extent to not be out there um, on the ground with you guys. But at the same time, it was kind of nice to be chilling in my air-conditioned matv yeah Yeah. that was it for us too like we we, the closest we got is i remember very specifically because it was killing us because we wanted to push you guys to boost your numbers because you guys were in the thick of it and try to try to provide some kind of security but uh we just couldn't get there quick enough and i remember the closest i got was probably me and sarnot and a couple of guys hopped up on a compound uh when the when the fire thought was kind of on the latter chunk of the firefight. It wasn't really in the thick of it. It was in that last little push. I think the medevac and stuff had taken off by then. And uh, I just remember scanning and hoping to see somebody because I was like, I, we can't do shit for these guys. So our experience of this was significantly different than yours, Seth. So please tell us tell us what happened uh, up there to the north. Talking about Grace coming through with the the trucks one night, we, we had taken over a compound and... We'd been in a firefight for a couple hours trying to con- like take take over this compound so we could actually use it to to sleep one night. And I remember that like later that night after we pretty much we'd fought off the attack, the uh, the trucks come come down this really narrow road. It's like how are they even getting in here? And yeah, they provided Overwatch for us that night, and we were so grateful because, I mean, we'd been fighting just to take over this compound, and several, several, several different groups of Taliban had just just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. So, having the trucks there that night, it it allowed us to actually get some rest to recuperate from the day we had just had, and then early the next morning we push off and we start walking walking west into the into the horn and we had gotten to a point where where part of third platoon had they had been bounding and got to a a great putt that had an id right right at the door and they were they had sent up uh, an element to go and clear it and they told me and i it felt like i was hurting cats because i had a I had a huge group of afghan i want to say it was afghan police with me and a couple a couple other people from brigade who had been attached to us that you know 
here I here I was the uh, the one guy with a radio and comms to the rest of our our uh, platoon so they they're in the rear with me as uh as they go and clear this ID and then we're we're told hey start start pushing forward so I, I take this element of, of cats and we start pushing forward through this wheat field and then we start taking fire so we all get we we get down and the the afghans they kind of went back to the grape but we had just been in so they go hang out back there and um, you know, i'm getting shot at so the, the first first thing i remember to do is get as low as you can and so i'm in the gray plate i'm not in a position to return fire where i am because there's the platoon element that's ahead of me and so i just i get i get down and start crawling toward a, a mud wall and I, I get up to it and throughout that time the the intensity of the firefight up ahead of me had had continued to grow and so i, I get to the wall where the element I'm with, we regroup with the, the rest of the headquarters element and the portion of the platoon that had fallen back to that wall. And we're, we're starting to engage in, in the firefight. And, and that's when uh, the PL, Lieutenant McGrath, he comes over the wall. And as, as he comes over the wall, he gets shot. And it's a million dollar wound right in the butt. And so he goes down and I mean, we all know Lieutenant McGrath is a big goofball. So what, what's he do? He quotes Forrest Gump. And he's like, something jumped up and bit me. <laughs> yeah. It, it literally got the grazing, just a grazing wound. It grazed his huge ass. It was a graze, but he, he yeah. got shot. So yeah. he... He goes down. He he like barrel rolls in the in the air as he's jumping over this wall, and he goes down. And then right after him comes one of the military working dogs and his handler. The dog's named Sicario, and he's a ferocious. Uh, was he a German Shepherd or a Belgian he was, Malinois? He was a Belgian Malinois, and yeah. I remember he was ferocious because he's one of only two dogs on the whole deployment that the handlers wouldn't let me pet the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he was, he was quite the dog, but so he comes over next. And then obviously right after him is his handler. And that's MA2 Sean Brazos from the, from the Navy. And as Sean's coming over the wall, he gets shot in the back right below the, the, the plate his right, right below the sappy plate. And he goes down and one of the infantrymen that's nearby, I want to say it was Sergeant Heaton, he yells, get the dog. And Sergeant Rudy, uh, the, the medic that was with the headquarters element, he was probably 10 feet from me on the other side of where Lieutenant McGrath and MA2 Brazos had come over this wall. And so he's trying to get to Sean so he can start rendering aid. And when, when I heard Sergeant Heaton yell, get the dog, I mean, I'm the closest person to the dog. And so I just jump up and I tackle the dog. I tackle Sicario and he's, he's a big Belgian Malinois with some amazing teeth. And 
I wrestled him for I don't know how long it was, but it was the entirety of that firefight. And I just wouldn't let go of him. Because he was trying to protect his handler. That's what he's trained to do is is be there and his handler is, is down. And now all these other guys are, are starting to try to render aid to him so the dog wants to protect him. So So here I am getting shot at in a fatal funnel wrestling a a military working dog that could easily have have bitten me multiple times and I didn't get bit once. I remember at one point the the medevac had landed and took off again because it got lit up by a PKM and so like it did a touch and go and just took off and after that we got swarmed by by Kiowas and Apaches doing gun run after gun run and the close air support they provided really knocked down that the Taliban element that we were fighting. And when the medevac finally landed the second time, we were able to load Sean and Sicario on that helicopter. It wasn't even nine in the morning yet. And our day had been so rough already that everyone is a was exhausted. We started having people drop as heat casualties. We were low on ammo. We 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 were in a really rough situation and if we were supposed to continue pushing forward that day, it was gonna be really hard. So we find the, the next closest grape hut and we we set up that OP and we reconsolidate. We we rack out for I don't know, a couple hours it felt like People are getting IVs to get their hydration up. We have the helicopters providing overwatch the entire time. And we regroup, we we eat some food, we get ammo supplied to us. The helicopters are dropping like Gatorade out, out their door for us. And we get to a point where we're able to push on for, for the uh, the next objective. And it's just... I mean, how much... Uh... How much had you gotten to know Sean before all that went down? You guys been out for a couple of days, right? Yeah, we'd been we had just met uh, when we were getting um, spun up for the the operation, and so we had been able to talk a couple nights. You know, when we'd bunker down, um, you know the the simple small talk you do when you're you're on a patrol with with new people. So. You, you spend that time, you get to know each other, and I mean, it was just amazing what the the Navy dog handlers would do, and they were such a vital part of our team. Yeah, we've talked about them a lot. I think, uh, and <clears throat> Braz's story is, you know, precisely one of the reasons why we have such a big spot in our heart for them, because these are guys coming to us from a completely different world who just got right in the thick of it with us. Um, so it was. A, serious connection we made with those guys and the dogs too that's that was like his dream to be a a dog handler and i mean he got teamed up with one of the most ferocious dogs out there and on a side note sicario he made it home he uh he retired last year and he's living on a i want to say it's a dog rescue or ranch in san diego that a lot of uh, retired military and police dogs get to, to to they go retire there. It's a great foundation that's that's taking care of them now. So he finished his career 
and I was honorably discharged to the wonderful San Diego Hills. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's good. So, you know, um, Brazos, you know, Sean, did he, was he KIA when he got on the bird or did he? So they say he still had a faint heartbeat when we got him on the medevac and we, we did get, I want to say it was the next day is when they confirmed to us that, yeah, he didn't make it. And I know the, the dog handler that you guys had, I mean, he took it pretty hard. I mean, it was, it was really rough on, on a lot of us. I mean, and then being right there next to him when it happened, it was, it was hard. It was hard. The, uh, that set of dog handlers had a pretty tragic deployment. Because uh, they deployed, I think, as a set of four, four dog handlers, um, all from, um, uh, not Whippy Island. Uh, oh, I can't remember the it's name of it. It's a Navy base. Seattle. It's north um, of Seattle. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, Everett. That is a naval, naval station just north of Everett. Um, and it was um, Salazar, Brazos, Brodsky, uh, Williams, I'm sorry, it's five, and um, Jones, those five guys. Uh, Brazos, uh, Brazos and Brodsky both were, were killed within a few weeks of each other. Um, and Williams' dog, Dynamite, was killed uh, later in the deployment. So it's pretty, pretty, the attrition rate for those military working dog teams was crazy high. Yeah. So, I mean, so after, after you know, Brazos' medevac, you guys go through that much needed, you know, kind of rest in place. Um, you know, has, is, is everyone's mind on the fact that, you know, Brazos may or may not make it, or is everyone kind of focused on the mission at that point? And just like, cause you're only halfway through this mission. Like, it's not like you yeah. just got to finish out the day and you're done. Like you have a lot of work to do still. Part of it was, was focused on, is he going to make it? But then, the reality is we're out here now, we're down a dog handler, we're down, you know, an IED detection point. So, I mean, that was the purpose of the dog is to detect the IED. So now we have to regroup our our efforts in moving forward and reorganize how we're, we're laid out. And we had several people that got medevac that same day uh, for heat cats and other reasons. I want to say there was only one or two other people that actually got wounded in the firefight. So, I mean, they, they were obviously medevac, but yeah, the, the heat got, so our numbers went, went down quite a bit and we were able to be a little bit more agile in our movements. Um, we didn't have quite as, quite as long of a footprint anymore. Um, and then we still had the Afghans that were, were tailing us. So yeah, we we finished that day, bunkered down, regrouped, and then continued pushing pushing west because uh, we we couldn't just hop in the trucks and go home. You you can't do that. The operation is what we're there for, and we were still combat effective. So we had to go out and we had to finish it. So, um, you know, for you coming from the Intel world where this isn't necessarily your job and it's also like not necessarily 
something that you can expect. So I think, but going yeah. into the and going into Sparwangar, at you know at all, and then going into the Horn, knowing we knew what that was going to be, you know, obviously that kind of like had to put you in a different mentality. So like going into that, because this is your first, this was, that was your first firefight, right? Those co the first day of shooting. It was one of the first. One of the first. Okay, I couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, so going into this like bigger operation and then on the back end, how did you see your kind of shift? Did you, I mean, did you experience kind of change in how you processed information, how you thought about your job? I mean, how did that have an effect on you? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it had quite the effect, um, how it, it changed how I looked at my job. I, I became way more focused on what the infantrymen would need throughout a patrol what are they going to go through what kind of intel actually helps them right and when when you look at intel reports that that we'd been given prior you know they were not really brief at times so the intel that we we knew that you guys could use had to be brief and easy to remember and not like a, a bunch of papers handed over to you that you're probably not gonna to read yeah because you don't have the time to so we we became way more concise in what we briefed and anytime we had a another operation it's like okay look this is what is important and, you know, there might be a couple of foot stomps. Hey, look, guys, this is really important. You need to know about this. The area you're going, this is the type of threat you're up against. Mm -hmm. This is the type of, you know, the the type of SIGAX that we've seen here over the past six months. This is what you're going to get hit with. So knowing that, knowing what we got hit with, knowing what, what type of resistance the Taliban would put up against us in the Horn of Panjway, I knew that for the rest of this deployment, because I mean, this was only May. Yeah. The rest of this deployment, we're going to get hit by this same stuff day after day. So, so yeah, it, it really helped me refocus and know what I could do to, to help you guys out more. And I mean, I, I would spend time going down and, and meeting up with you guys after after patrols, before patrols, just in off time, just talking, getting to know the guys in the platoons, so that I knew what what it was they were looking for. Yeah, and I mean, because I I could go off of my experience all day, but the level of experience that the the platoons had was greater than mine. So I learned so much from them and wanted to tailor how I did my job to help to support them the best I could. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's really cool that you had the, the foresight and the wisdom to kind of develop your, your style of, uh, in, yeah. Intel work to suit that because once that Intel worked its way down the ranks and disseminated down to us, it didn't, we didn't care about, you know, as a, just an average, you know, average Joe grunt, all we need is a name and a village and a relative area, you know? <laughs> so if we had those three things and we kind of, and we had our, and we had our, we knew our route in and our planned route out, then, you know, we, we could 
do our job, our part of the puzzle, you know? So it was good that you saw that you needed to get that concise and precise information down to us. And yeah, if it was pages long, for one, as Joe's, we were never going to see it. You know, it's just like grunts doing the fight. We were never going to see it. The PL might see it, you know? Um, but you know, for us having that essential information was, uh, well, essential to what we could do because yeah. our job was to shoot, you know, walk into places, shoot, and then turn around and go back with hopefully something in tow or someone. And that also kind of lands on another theme of the deployment. And the reason that we didn't read these sheets of intels because we were always, the op tempo was high, man. We were yeah. out and gone a lot every day. We were doing something. Every platoon was doing something. So you know, the theme that emerged for you guys in headquarters was urgency, right? That was uh, <laughs> yes. kind of a, a pit of Brown that, Kitchen. I, I, I think that theme, it probably joined us before the deployment. That was like the uh, the PT sessions that we'd have with, with Captain Kitchen before, before we even got the orders to Afghanistan. He's like, look, you guys need to PT with a sense of urgency. You need to do this. Everything was with a sense of urgency. That, you yeah. know, your life or the guy next to you, their life depended on it. So, yeah, urgency was was a, a big part of how we we uh, worked in the headquarters platoon. Yeah. How did that affect your day-to-day in Esper Wangar? I knew that my days were going to be long. And if there was an operation going on, then I definitely needed to, you know, keep doing my work, but I'm also in there and I can listen to the radios and react if needed and just monitor the situation and sure. know that, hey, if if one of the platoons is out doing a patrol to the northeast of, of, the, of Spurangar, what are they likely to to come across and how can I help them if something comes across the radio and they need assistance with something, what, what can I provide them? And I mean, it wasn't just me doing that. It was, uh, Lieutenant Vancura would, would jump on the radio sure. and occasionally Captain Kitchen would, he would, uh, he'd get <laughs> oh, on we're, and he we're would... aware. We know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kind of that sense of urgency, uh, cause we were talking the other day, um, you know, there, there an opportunity came up as a result of some like last minute intelligence for us to get somebody that we really yeah. wanted to get. So, could you kind of spin the tale yeah. about how things just kind of fell into place? Um, and I'll set the stage a little bit before you can tell your story. Um, we mentioned before that an uh, ODA, a special forces captain, had lost his legs in an IED attack early on in our deployment. Um, essentially, somebody had snuck into a base that was being constructed. And planted an IED at the entrance of a of a connex, and when he went to open the connex, uh, he uh, it it blew up and he lost his legs. Uh, and we had some intel at the time; we knew who it was, but no one could find him. And that's where Seth's job and his story kind of comes in. So yeah, we'd uh, we'd gotten reports that the the guy who placed the IED, his name was Najib. He's a young young guy who, you know, from what we understood, he was an ID in placer. So we, so we, we wanted to find him. He, he took the legs from this ODA team leader and we're like, that's our focus. And that happened so early in the deployment that we're like, 
the the guys up in the in the office you know we're the the three of us we're like we put his name on the whiteboard we're like that's our that's our target number one for this deployment now we need to figure out how to get him we need to figure out who he is like where does he live and it meant a lot to us, but nobody higher cared because there's no reporting. There's no actual serialized intel reporting talking about this guy. So nobody else has him on their radar. He's literally just on my whiteboard yeah. as a target that I want to, to find. And I don't know, when did this happen? In September, probably? September sounds about right. Yeah, maybe even August, yeah. honestly. Yeah, so it had been a, several months. And one night, one of the ALP checkpoint commanders or deputy commanders had had come by, and they, they would always want to come talk to Captain Kitching because he could get anything that they needed from what they understood or what they felt and I mean, it would get really burdensome on him so he'd be like okay Seth uh, why don't you go talk to this guy because I don't have the time so I go to our conference room and here he is and I have one of the interpreters with me and one of the security guys and I'm, he's talking you know hey you know we need money for fuel we need this and that and I was like, man, I can't guarantee you anything. Maybe if you provide us something, I can, I could, you know, get you some food or something. And he's like, okay, you know, whatever. And he's looking at the map we have on the wall. It, it covered like a huge portion of our AO to the northeast of Spermangar. And he's focused on one particular village up along Route Hyena. And, and I, I asked him, I'm like, what, you know, what are you, what are you looking at? Like, he's like, I'm just trying to figure out my village, you know, cause he's not used to seeing the overhead imagery and a map like that. So I asked him like, you know, we've been looking for a guy and I, I went through the story. I was like, yeah, the guy who placed the ID and, and explained everything to him. I was like, where does this guy live? And he pointed at one of the compounds in his village. He's like, he lives here. I was like, is he is he going to be there tonight? He's like, yeah, most likely. So I took that, you know, I got the uh, the grid to where that compound was, and I w went back and I told Captain Kitching, I'm like, look, this guy just gave us the compound to where Najib lives. I want to change First Platoon's patrol for tomorrow morning. He's like. You believe it? I was like, it's worth, it's worth giving it a shot. And he's like, okay, go tell the PL. So I go down to the PL's room and I'm like, hey man, um, your patrol's changing. We're gonna go hit this compound and I want you to bring back this person. And so we spend the next little while planning that out. And I mean, you guys had to get out there early, so. So it's that the urgency of knowing what to ask. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a collector. It's not my job. But I can ask certain questions and if the guy is willing to provide information and okay, you know, it it's something we could use 
to get this this target so i mean it was important that we go out and do that and we got that target yeah so that was a i mean that was a pretty i mean that's a very successful mission it went fairly smoothly i mean curtis almost got shot (laughs) but that wasn't his fault that that was that was bally's fault (laughs) for sure (laughs) but yeah we went in i mean we left at i remember Actually, uh, believe it or not, I remember this one. We, we left Sparrow Guard at 11 o'clock at night. And uh, and we had a long walk in, long, slow walk under nods uh, across that. It was in, to the east of Sketcher. There was kind of some open ground between Sketcher and the Jot. We kind of cut a diagonal across that open ground. And uh, we pushed in, and our squad went to the south, set up a blocking position. Second squad pushed into the compound right at, uh, right at dawn. And, uh, you know, they snatched up, they snatched up the Jeep pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I feel like we weren't there very long. You know? oh, okay. I was yeah. telling Grace the other day, like, you guys got back. I was still in PTs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we snatched up. <laughs> I met up, up with you guys on the HLZ. I was in PT still. Yeah, man. Well, so. I think part of that is, like, this was a mission. This wasn't our normal patrol where it's like, go to this village, talk to the elders, get bats and hides on every military male in the village, go mm-hmm. figure out whatever, go ask some people. No, it was like, hey, go in there, grab this dude, get him back to the district center. And, like, that's all we did. We didn't look for anybody else in the village. We didn't talk to anybody else in the village. We literally just grabbed the guy. We bat and hided him, confirmed it was who we were looking for, and then we were out. And it's a good thing we were, because if we waited any longer, we would have gotten to a real thick gunfight, because we got shot at pretty bad on the way out. Yeah, like, on the way out, they belly sprained his ankle, and that held us up for probably, like, two or three minutes while he was trying to get this gumption to get back up and running. And they came out, and a couple guys came out and shot at us on the way out. Hit the wall next to Curtis. What a foot away? I don't even know anymore. Because it, <laughs> it was it was when Tom and I were trying to climb over a wall, so yeah. everyone else was down in the grape rows. We were down in the rows, and we're coming up trying to cross over the wall to clear to the other side. So we're the only ones that they can see, yeah. and so they start shooting at us, but we can't move. So we just like laid down. Like, I just hoped that they were in as inaccurate as they always were. There's literally nothing we could do because we couldn't shoot back because we couldn't shoot over top of your guys' heads. So it's just like, great, this is this is where I die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it went pretty well. We laid down yeah. some suppressive fire in that tree line about 50 meters out. Yeah. Perez, Juan Rambo came up, deafened my left eardrum because the, the muzzle of the saw was about right here. Uh, so I was getting all the compression off that. And he had this habit, uh, Seth, of just letting her rip all of it yeah and so i was i was shooting he was shooting and then another guy came up and shot to my right and i was getting the concussion from both guns and i just like laid my gun down and stuck my fingers in my ears <laughs> and I hit the prone because i was like i'm not doing anything i'm just gonna save what's left in my hearing yeah and uh then we we hightailed it out of there and hauled ass because second squad had in the jeep so we were just hauling ass to get back to the trucks yeah. and we did haul ass getting shot at yeah. as we ran away i think but all in all in, for an average day in Panjway, that was a very successful mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you guys got back. We processed them at the at the base, and I think I probably did another biometric enrollment, and then just to make sure we had a, a good solid one, and put them back in the trucks. I don't know if you guys took them over to the district center, but okay, sure did. Yeah, it was you, <laughs> and uh, I got on the phone with the ODA. I was like, "Hey guys, I got a present for you." That was a good capture. Nobody, nobody got killed. We we all made it home that day, and mm-hmm. and he he spent. I don't know what happened after 
you know it's afghan judicial system so yeah it'd be interesting to see what he's up to up to now oh, yeah. i'm sure Maybe he's he, up to his old out, tricks hanging out in his little hut down mm-hmm. in his kitchen yeah, he's uh, still he's making ids farmer. i'm sure but yeah. we made his life a lot worse for at least a short period yeah. of time a short period of time so like and kind of going back to that that theme of timeliness and urgency I mean, what was it, like maybe less than 24 hours between when you got that intel and that guy was in the system? Less, because, yeah. I mean, it was the night before. I mean, you said you stepped off at 11. Yeah. I was talking to the ALP guy that night. Hmm. So, a couple hours. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where your patrol uh, originally was going to be going off to, but... I remember, I think it was somewhere shitty. So we were already yeah. in the mindset of going to like yeah. a sketch or Najat or something. Yeah, like. I, I don't think yeah, we were so, too upset by that mission. No. I mean, it was it was a quick, quick you know, shift in in uh, in plans and, and go. Yeah. Now, that wasn't, that was more, wasn't really the only time that urgency kind of came into play. I mean, there was, um, do you remember the, the time with the Schnooks? So there's, we were getting a resupply. We probably had uh, two Chinooks on the HLZ. And, you know, part of being in headquarters, you go help with everything. So if you have spare spare time, you know, you go help unload the helicopter. And so I'm down there on the HLZ, and I see one of uh, one of my interpreters come running toward the, the HLZ. And he's he's listening to... Um, radio intercepts that we could get because the Afghan, you know, the Taliban all used really cheap radios. Yeah. So we just, it was like having another radio and just listening in on whatever station was active. And he comes running to toward me. He's like, they said they got an RPG and they're waiting for the helicopters to take off and go back out, you know, the the way they came in. So I, I run up the ramp and Chinook and I grab the, the crew chief and, you know, he's got his big Darth Vader helmet on so he can't really hear anything and it's so loud. I was like, RPG, that way. You need to fly the other way. You know, when you take off, go the other way. And he's like, okay. And I, I stick my head into the cockpit and I'm yelling as loud as I can for the pilots to hear this as well. And they rogered up that they understood. And when they when they took off, they they did a, a really low hover, spun around a 180, and just took off. And they try not to take off going in that direction because it screws up all our antennas. But I'd rather have to go fix some antennas with, with Olive and the combo guys than have to go rescue a... A Chinook that gets shot down right off the the edge of our base. Yeah, so yeah, that'd be a uh, bad. It would have been. It would have been yeah, awful. Bad, bad day. That'd because, be a long, drawn out day. Yeah, and so so working with with those interpreters, they knew. Hey, look, if we hear something that's urgent, we can't just wait till you know the end of the day or whatever we need to go act on it. Mm-hmm. And they they weren't your typical Afghan interpreters. These were, they, they had been born and raised in Afghanistan, but they fled during the Soviet invasion time frame. And um, 
one of them was an American. He had uh, immigrated to the United States, and the other had uh, immigrated to the, the United Kingdom. Really? I so they were that. both highly trusted interpreters. They weren't they weren't normal interpreters yeah. for us. So which which terps are these? This was uh, it was Wahid and Mike. I remember Mike. They were almost always yeah. in the talk, right? Yeah, they were in yeah. the talk yeah. all the time. Yeah. They were in the talk a lot, and then you know that we we set them up with with those radios down there on the uh, on the gun line from when they used to have artillery out at Spermgar. They took over like a little shack down there and just listened to the radios for a while. I didn't even know they did that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, that's why we're doing yeah. this podcast. So yeah, we can get those yeah, little insights because I had no idea that was even a thing. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing them in the talk. I didn't know about the listening station down on the down by the gun line. And uh, yeah, they they did some really good work out of there. And I mean, if at the end of the day, if it came down to just reporting that the Taliban had RPGs and were going to try to shoot down that helicopter, if, I mean, they prevented that. That was. That's, I mean, it's worth a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's worth yeah. a lot. It's worth magnitudes right there. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that it's easy for us to be like, oh, man, glad that didn't happen. But that would be like erasing an entire moment. Like if that had happened, you know, and if an aircraft had gone down in our sector, um, it wouldn't have just been like a flipping like, oh, man, I'm glad they caught that call. It would have been like, I wish I could go back and erase this moment. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. But I mean, it's. In follow-on deployments I've had, I've I've had to work aircraft that have gone down for yeah. various reasons. And I mean, you're a pilot, you know, mm-hmm. you know the the complexities of that. And doing it in a combat zone when you're under fire in a really remote area, yeah, it's not easy. So I had to do a nine and a half hour mission one day because the aircraft went down. That's yeah. way beyond our allowable flight limits for a day. It's but you, you do it, you have to, mm-hmm. you know. And it's nothing compared to what those guys on the ground are having to do. You know, walk out there, secure it. They're pulling body parts out of wreckage. They're sitting there for days until they can find a way to get that thing out of there. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's because they. I mean, they don't leave the aircraft there. No. If, if it, Mm-mm. if it's, I mean, there's a way to get it out. It, They're going to get it out before they'll blow it up. That's for sure. Yeah. It's been a multi-day fight for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think oh, I kind of want to take a tangent here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Because it's something that I thought about the other day, but this uh, speaks a lot to something that we always participated in, which was these hypotheticals, the what ifs of situations. Mm-hmm. You know, so like this idea of an aircraft getting shot down, like or, or a drone getting like you know, a wrecking in our AO or whatever. It was always like these what ifs. Like if the aircraft would have gone down, what would it have been like? What would we have had to do? And I remember, Curtis, you and I would have the what-if conversation a lot. What if we get separated from the platoon on patrol? And we both had our, like, contingency plans in place for uh, if we got separated during a firefight or we just couldn't get back or we got left or whatever the situation was, how we would plan to get back to Sparrowingar on our own. And so you, you run through these hypothetical situations all the time while you're there. And I feel like in some ways, man, those are kind of dark, dangerous games to play in your own mind. But they're important to an extent. And the answer was walk south to the reggae's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my my answer was, yeah. My answer was find a hidey hole, camouflage the shit out of myself, wait till dark, 
walk shit creeks to south of the reggae's and then just walk the open ground back to spare one guard or nods and hope hopefully you know make it back and uh headquarters and the amount of time that we spent looking at maps and looking at the the camera feeds around the the base there's that road going due west out of Spurringar. The Taliban had, Highway. Taliban Highway. Yeah. Um, so Captain Kitching and I were, were looking at that way one day, and he's like, do you think I could run all the way down Taliban Highway where it turns right, take that north all the way to Hyena, and then back down Route Brown and make it with both my legs and not get killed. <laughs> and I was like, well, knowing how fast you run, sir, you'll make it halfway. <laughs> no, you know what? I, be- I believe. I believe that if he had, you know, put his PTs on, you know, carried like an M- M9 in sand or something, and he just like set up at the ass crack of dawn one morning, I bet he could have made it. I bet he could have d- done it so fast because like they wouldn't even know what to think at first. They'd be like, what is what is going on right now? And he'd be like, and he'd be moving so quick. There's no way they'd get IEDs out in front of him. I, I bet he could do it. I bet he would have done it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't once. think I have that much faith in him. Everybody's human, even even Brian Kitching. <laughs> well, not not that he was like that was like like superhuman fast, but like a the confusion of it, and b like they need time to like go turn the IEDs That's on. True. And so like, like an ambush and stuff. Yeah. yeah, so they they need they need like twenty thirty minutes, and that route I think it was probably I'm ballparking maybe like four or five miles. He can yeah. do that in yeah. twenty five minutes. Yeah, yeah done. He's true. got it. He's got it. So yes, so Brian, you could have done but, it. But our scenario was like middle of the afternoon. No. Yeah. Nope. IDs are on. Yeah. No way. And so I mean that that's the type of stuff like we'd sit there and. We'd have hypotheticals about that, and you know, just all kinds of random things. Yeah. Or what if you know the P tids and Mossum Guard broke loose, and we gotta go get that. I mean, stuff like that happens. The P tids <laughs> yeah. break loose. <laughs> yeah, the That's hypothetical a good one too. of um, you know, if the cop was getting overran, yeah, how, what would we do to launch a defense? And of course, honestly, I think because those cluster of villages to the west were so much closer but they were closer to the Afghan side of the cop. I feel like if, if it had been switched, because they were only a couple hundred meters from that side of the cop, if it had been switched and they were that close to our side of the cop, I wonder if we would have gotten hit more on the cop itself. So there's another hypothetical, probably. Yeah. yeah. But we had that good would've. solid like 500 meters of open ground to the east. And then to north was pretty, pretty, uh, you know, it was pretty dense. And every time we did, you know, take fire. It was always from the east. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'd lob a couple of grenades over the wall or whatever, and then they'd we'd completely overreact to it. <laughs> but that's yes, we would. The American way. Our home. It is the American way. Yeah, you you lobbed rounds into our home. Now we're going to dump ten thousand rounds into the wall that you were behind. Yep. Make that wall collapse. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Uh, well, we thought it was always always weird that like we agree like the east was where almost everything kicked off for us. But when we got to Spurwangar, they were all like the unit force was all talking about the west. They said, oh, yeah. the west, the west, the two eight grid line, the two eight grid line, the west. And we're yeah, because I want to say that was where they focused. And mm-hmm. everything they had briefed to me is like you know you get out to the two eight grid line and you know things get a little sketchy out there and you know this one village is safe, but and Taliban Highway. 
how many times do we go down that road and not have anything happen? Most wow. most times going down Taliban Highway, they I think they called it that just because maybe one time they came across somebody, but that was our that was our entrance into some of those western villages. We'd have to go down that a, a little ways yeah. if we used yeah. the roads. Well, which then that's a, a key point. We did it a lot early on. We walked on Taliban Highway a lot early on, but once we got off the roads, come around late June, I never touched it again. Yeah. yeah. You know what's crazy is I can only remember two firefights for a platoon out to the west. Same. Our first two. Our first two yeah. were out there to it, the west. Didn't you, you guys have the very first firefight we got into? We did. Mm-hmm. It was Way right after the two line. Yeah. And one of the guys fell on a canal, right? That was Curtis. <laughs> Curtis? That was you. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't fall yeah. into the canal. I jumped. He jumped into pushed, the canal. Is that jumped emphatically into the canal at the urging of my platoon leader. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad that story made the rounds. That's important to me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, this kind of what if game is pretty much your job yeah you know i mean we we did it as kind of a mental exercise or boredom on guard or you know late night sleeping but um you know kind of thinking about these scenarios uh how how did the risk along route brown kind of play into you know those scenarios for you as an intel analyst because i mean it's it's a for us it's a choke point i mean it's the only way in and out right um it, I mean, it was the the only paved road into Spermagar, and it was it was the only way we were going to get in there, um, and it was a choke point because that's where we are constantly running convoys, and we're bound to have something happen on it. Yeah. Luckily, you know, it being paved, the IED threat there is lower. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're guaranteed something else is going to happen and just because it's paved maybe somebody along one of the the uh the culverts could you know put something in there mm-hmm. but luckily we never had that happen but we we'd constantly have firefights along route brown and no matter what operation if it was mounted dismounted you know that threat was always there mm-hmm. um especially later in the deployment when we were doing more of those operations around oh, where that schoolhouse was. Adam's and, Eye. Uh, yeah, Adam's Eye. And, you know, or we we had that operation where they wanted to cut that road through the middle of these people's fields. It was, it was another one of those days where, you know, monitoring the, the radios and the talk, hearing hearing an explosion you know it, it was that close that you can hear it and and knowing that okay something happened our guys are probably in the thick of it right now what do we need to do to support and in this situation there wasn't wasn't a lot i could do from there because once the radios came back on we we heard them say hey we're hit we're turning around and coming back and there it was a mounted 
um, convoy that was just there to provide overwatch. So the, this truck comes, goes flying back onto the base, and I immediately, once I heard that radio transmission, I ran from from my office across the compound to the aid station, and I ran into the medics, and I was like, we got casualties, they're on their way, get ready. And we, they all jump up, and they're grabbing their bags, getting stuff ready, and we run out to the HLZ and we see the truck coming running come like flying around the, the corner and usually nobody's driving fast on the base yeah this is the fastest anybody I've, i'd ever seen and they're just flying and it's just one truck and they make it around the HLZ to the aid station and the, the TC jumps out and he yells get them out get them out and I'm right there. I'm like, I'm the closest to the truck. So I jump in and that's that's where I see, you know, this truck got hit by an RPG. It's RPG cages dangling off and the smell and the sight and then the screaming you hear inside. It's it's unreal. And to turn and see somebody you knew who's no longer there he had lost his life at on the impact of that rpg and then everybody else in that truck their their lives have now changed well one uh, the gunner lost his leg the other uh, soldier in the back had um shrapnel in his neck shrapnel in the in the in the driver's neck and just the the trauma of being there in that situation for those guys in that truck, all five of them, it's, it's horrible to, to witness and to be that guy who's now at reacting to, to that and trying to, to get Sergeant Swindle out of that truck so that we could get to the guys who are still alive. It, it was, it was horrible because you're you're having to take him out and he's your friend and you know he's not there anymore. But he's also in the way of you trying to get to another guy and render aid. So we had to get him out as quickly as we could. Get him onto a stretcher and then move on to to Hendrick and get him out. And it's a really tough situation to get a gunner out who just had his leg cut off by an RPG. Like, how do you, how do you move him? How do you do it without causing even more pain? And so you said the, he was still group, in his harness, right? Yeah, he was still in his harness. He was so trying to get him out and get him through the, the truck and, I mean, those trucks are pretty high up. So getting them down and then onto a stretcher so the PA can start, you know, doing his job. It was it was pretty rough, rough time. And it, it all goes back to the urgency. This is what we needed to be doing. I mean, Intel guy on the, on the cop, just overhearing the radios reacts and and goes and puts himself in that situation to offer as much help as possible. Sure. And I wasn't the only one who ran over there. Um, 
we we had guys just swarm and once people realized what was going on we had enough people to to get everybody out start rendering aid get the nine lines were already on their way up so that we could have medevac come in as quickly as we could and it was it, it ran so smoothly trying to react to to that because i mean it, it was september we had been through nine lines before we'd been through reacting to fire this was the first time we'd i think had an rpg actually strike one of our trucks and cause the loss of life and and to wound several other guys and for it to happen right out our front door it, we never got reporting ahead of time that yeah there's an rpg cell right here they had never shot an rpg in that area before that we'd known known about i know they attacked the alp checkpoint that was about a mile north of us maybe maybe that far they got hit regularly but it was small arms it was never to the best of my knowledge anything more than a pkm hmm. and now to have an rpg strike on a truck not even a quarter mile outside our gate that that was rough that was that was hard to swallow Mm -hmm. that it happened so close and that was just a a bad day all around yeah me and curtis will probably take some time to break that down later on because it that story needs to be told in its fruition but i I think a a good interviewee for that would be uh john orbaugh yes yeah he's on our list for sure yeah uh, we've mentioned how much we like old sarnobaugh many times before but uh yeah, I believe I believe he shook off he shook off a couple IED blasts. And he, he shook off an almost a direct hit with an RPG to his um, bulldozer, which is nowhere near as heavily armored as an MATV. Yeah. So as uh, yeah, I mean we were we were lucky that day not to have to have two yeah, really two major incidents really. Yeah. And yeah. We were, um, I think Curtis, you were in the truck. I was in the truck right in front of him. So you were in yeah, right I in front of him, that. and I was I was right in front of you, in the next truck up, and I remember hearing that explosion, and thinking like "fuck," you know, like it was it was close, and it was loud, and I was like, you know, it didn't really sound like an IED. It sounded yeah. different. Didn't have that umph that an IED has, and uh, and then the Morgan spun up on the radio, and it was just bad news to hear because it was yeah. right off the bat. It was KIA, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely a different sounding explosion because mm-hmm. we'd all heard IEDs multiple yeah, times, but right. the RPG has a distinct noise. Yeah, yeah. Well, it definitely like got our gunners on. Like, I think Pfeiffer was my gunner, and he was tweaking out because yeah. like we we didn't move, we were still mm-hmm. there. I stayed out there for a minute too. Stayed out there for a while too. We never got the guy that did it. We don't know what happened to him. Where he was. So as far as we knew, he was still out there. He he'd already shot several RPGs that day. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of puckered buttholes. Um, and it's uh, you know what what happened to to Sergeant Swindle that that definitely pushed through the cop real hard because yeah. it was like as as Seth said that wasn't something that happened to click outside the cl- the the wire and that we came back to and just told people what happened. I mean, everyone on the base, people that weren't usually exposed to that battlefield trauma were right up front with it. 
probably um, one of the worst of the deployment. Yeah. Because I mean, it's worst almost a visually. Mask, visually, yeah. Worst yeah, like the, visually. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you've got three people that are fucked up and yeah, so that's that's a bad, bad thing to be exposed to. Yeah. But I mean, I think you make a good point, Seth, that the timing of that happening, while it was an absolutely tragic um, and it really hurt a lot of people, especially 3rd Platoon, they they had a rough go uh, of our time at Spurwangar, but um, because we had been there for so long and we had this urgency kind of drilled into us and we had these battle rhythms, and we had these battle drills and everybody knew their place. So there was, there was no delay in getting, figuring out, okay, this is what we need to do and we need to get... We need to get Jason out, and we need to get to to Hendrick. We need to get to McCaffrey. We need like you said it yourself; it was smooth. Um, It it happened the way it was supposed to, and had that happened in April, um, I don't think we would we would remember it, and or you would remember it in the same way. No, it would have been a mess. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it was a mess, but it operated smoothly. We everybody reacted in a way to get the job done and get it done quickly and efficiently and it it didn't matter what we what needed to be done we were doing it and we did it because you know their lives their life depended on it yeah and and i mean hendrick lost his the lower half of his leg and but he's he's still alive. Yeah. McCaffrey had his wounds to his neck, but he's still alive today. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, the little amount of work I had to put into that, you know, could could have been what was needed to save their lives. And yep. it, it doesn't matter what you do; like you're reacting to save your brother's life. And I was I was in the safety of my office when this happened, and I, to to know that you know the guys are out there, like like you guys, you are still out there. What what do we need to do now to to wrap this situation up and then go out and support you guys? to make sure that you have what's needed to continue this mission. Sure. And I mean, that's what we had to do. I like, it's not like the day wasn't over. We weren't done with our operations. Yeah. And it's September. We are not going home yet. I think that's one of the, that's one of the hardest things about the grind of being in there is that not only does the day not end, like you mentioned that with, process but the same with swindle you know the day the mission isn't over you gotta keep pushing but then when that particular event wraps up and reaches its finality you go back out over and yeah. over and over again yeah and so by the time we got to september you know one of the things that was i don't know if this was unique to our our particular experience i'm sure other units have had similar uh kind of interactions but at, by that point in the deployment everybody on the cop more or less had gotten into the thick of it. It didn't matter what your MOS was. It didn't matter what role you played. Pretty much everybody had seen some good solid combat by then. And so yeah. even if you're if you weren't a combat MOS, 
you would still have had that experience like you had had on the horn and other missions that you had been on up to that point and so everybody was kind of on this different level of of working including you know the, the talk guys even like soaring our balls of you know he's a mechanic and so you know it was just a different it, there was no it was a it was the great equalizer in a lot of ways and that everybody yeah. got their piece of it you know their piece of the pie yeah and i think that's a that's a really good point because we were we were short manned as an infantry company mm-hmm. because we were short one of our platoons drastically yeah we were short one of our platoons and, and we, the platoons were short and the platoons were short so i think we had probably seth probably knows i think 100 people total on the cop would be our, yeah around that around that and a normal infantry company clocks in around like 140. So 100 with attachments is a pretty low number. Um, so if you were on Spurwangar and you weren't an 11 Bravo, you were going to find yourself at some point manning a turret, driving a truck, you know, walking out on a on a patrol with 1st Platoon. Like, it was going to happen at some point. Um, so to, going off of that, there was... Um, at one point, some guys from brigade had come down. Um, it was like a, a mental health team. The combat I, stress team. Yeah, the oh, combat stress team. Mm-hmm. I mean, they came by and our, they were there when one of the few times where the base actually got attacked. Mm-hmm. So when, when the call came out to man the wall, you know, they're out there too because, you know, they have a rifle. They can... They can shoot, hmm. hopefully. These are like chaplain's assistants. Yeah, but weren't they, weren't they told they weren't allowed to get on the wall or something? So remember, we were like, "Hey, come on, let's go, go, let's go get get on the wall." They, well, I think they back. were just they weren't sure what to do, oh, so they okay. needed somebody to to help them along the way. But we got um, we got spoken to afterward when when Treat had done their paperwork to get their their cabs. And somebody had called in and was like, well, they weren't supposed to leave the wire. And his response back was, they didn't. The base got attacked and, <laughs> you know, they had to shoot back. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I know a lot of units, like especially like the, the PSD for the colonel or whatever at CAF, they would they would get real jacked about coming to Spurwangar because of how often we took contact yeah, uh, and um, like you know that ro- that drive down from Hyena down Route Brown, like you could see it in them. They were just just jacked. Like they were hoping something would kick off on that short yeah. one mile stretch of road. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they ever they no, ever had they anything happen. No. Uh, well, as we start to come towards the the terminus of this this interview, you know, we did come home from Afghanistan. Um, you know, what, what did, what did your experiences in, you know, Spurangar and Panjway do for you going forward in your career and, and kind of in your life? Well, it was hard to top that deployment. I had one more deployment in the army. I actually, uh, spent a little bit of time up in Zabel, but came back down to our battalion that was at CAF doing the same mission that 164 had done when we were at Spurangar. So I knew what it was and I knew it was going to be boring and a waste of time. So yeah, topping that deployment in 2012 didn't happen. So it it set me up understanding, like I talked about earlier, you know, knowing that the guys who were out there fighting the war, they need 
they need the Intel to be precise and they need it to be something that they can easily use. So we, we have to, as Intel professionals, build those products that are usable by the infantrymen. And I've, I've been told in products that I've made since, you know, leaving the, the, uh, the military and in my civilian job that, that you know, that, that's a little too tactical for what we do. <laughs> and I look at the person telling me that I'm like, do you know what the guy at the, at the receiving end of this Intel needs? Cause I do, and they need something that they can use at the tactical level. And they just don't understand it because they don't have combat experience. They mm -hmm. have office experience, which well, I ran into that a lot when I was uh, when I was there in seventeen as a pilot because we were when I was at Kandahar we were attached to a Black Hawk battalion, and they are all about their route to the objective. That's their whole planning process. How do we get here? How do we do this? But the Apaches are we're on scene tactical. Like we're talking to the ground force. We're telling them where to go. Like we're basically infantry in the sky in terms of like how we see the battlefield. We're not infantrymen. We're totally pogues. But um, we need our products to be like what theirs are. And they always give us these crappy products based on some weird thing of like, this is where the angle of the picture was taken from the satellite or whatever. I'm like, no, I need a map that has north up. Because the infantryman is looking at a map where north is up. And I need to talk to the same thing. I need to be able to see sees the same thing that I do. And they, they didn't, their intelligence shop didn't understand it. Like, no, that's not the way we do things. I'm like, well, that's how the ground guy does it. It's like, go yeah. into that brief, ask all the SF guys that were taken to the objective what their products look like, and they're all north up. So it needs yeah. to match. I mean, th that's how it should be. You, no matter what level, you being the, the pilot or in my current job, providing that intel to, you know, a ship out on the water, knowing how they look at it, how they look at the the intelligence from their perspective is so valuable to the intel professional making that because if they're if if i'm making a product based on how i i see the world right that's my perspective but for the guy out doing an interdiction or doing an operation knowing how they see it is so much more important because they're the one who's putting their life on the line my life is no longer on the line, but providing that level of intel yeah. in a way that they can use it is so important. And so many people don't understand that. They yeah. think, you know, it needs to be strategic and written this way and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we, we need we need so many bullet points and, and whatever. It's like, no, you need you need tactical level stuff that the guy who's actually going to get this guy will find useful. And I hope you fell into a command that appreciated that, but the chances are probably not that great. <laughs> There's not many commands like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's that speaks to one of the, um, I think people from the outside world look at, it, look at the military and they think it's this like, maybe not so much anymore because the mythos has been pretty much deconstructed over the past 20 years, but yeah. you know, people used to look at the military and think, oh, everybody's you know, professional and squared away and like really on this particular level of being, but it's not really the case. You know, a lot of times it's the kid that couldn't hold a job at Taco Bell or it's the college dropout who doesn't know what the hell to do with his life. This guy right here, for example. <laughs> 
and you know it's it's um it's a huge massive organization where there's so much disparagement between priorities and experience and things like that that mm. that continuity of information and connectivity is just breaks down all over the place and so you know a guy in calf who's working in that shop at you know a battalion in calf he is not going to have that experience and it's no fault of his own. He just gets stuck there. You know, it's luck of the draw, and depending on what your job is or, and where you're going to be going and what you're doing. I mean, it's infantrymen that go entire deployments. We went the entire deployment in Iraq and didn't even see combat, you know, um, because of where we were at and what we were doing. And um, so, you know, it, it's it's a big, massive organism that doesn't really do a good job of having all of its synapses firing at once, except for when everybody is shrunken down and everybody is on that same level and everybody has that shared overarching experience like as you've talked about by the time you got around to september october the latter last two three four months of the deployment our company was on that level because everybody was there you know yeah and we can kind of insulate ourselves against all the exterior bullshit because we knew what we needed to do to get the job done as well as we could do within the parameters of, that were put on us exactly I mean, it was a it was a well well oiled machine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're gonna we're gonna end on that. And what we always do at the end, Seth, is we kind of give everyone a chance to anything that we didn't cover or that you kind of wanted to say, or if there's anything you wanted to say, the the floor is yours. Well, I mean, we we covered quite a bit from the deployment and from from that side of it, and. A lot of guys, they, they did that deployment and they got out of the army. They went home and moved on with their life. And eventually everybody does that. Um, and where I work now, um, in the office I work, it is 100% veteran. 100%, which is nice. I mean, it's multiple branches. Not everybody had had the stellar combat experience that we may have had, but they're all veterans. And when I went through the VA process, you know, it was cumbersome and took some time, but I eventually did it. And I, I work with people that they've been out of the Army or the Navy for, for years. We're talking over a decade, maybe close to two decades. Never went through the VA process. Yeah. Never got a VA rating. And some of them have, you know, problem. They, they have problems that are linked to their military career. And they're not getting compensated for it. They're not getting cared for it. Or they're paying for that care out of pocket. And I mean, I, I, everybody knows that the VA has its issues, but that shouldn't stop people from going and at least putting in the, the paperwork. So the VA knows that you are a veteran and you have this issue that's linked to your service. So if anybody's out there who hasn't gone through that process, it's, it's become easier there's agencies out there that will help many at no cost 
Uh, I went through the, the county I live in. They have a veteran affairs division that they do nothing but go through people's military um, files and work step by step with them to file their VA claim, get any, any of the VA benefits. And so I went through them and, and went through the process and didn't pay a dime. And you shouldn't have to. You know, it, these are benefits that we, we earned through our service. And whether or not you, you want to take advantage of them or not, that's up to you. But at least go through, let the VA know that you're there. And, and down the road, if you do need that, that medical help, you know, they're there for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a country that spends billions of dollars developing fighter, you know, fighter planes. They can spend, uh, we you spend, know, we waste money on yeah. the most ridiculous things. Yeah. We can, so we can spend if you're worried about, to, you know, out. if you're worried about, you know, well, you know, it's going to cost them money. They have the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the VA's budget is, is fine like one one more person 10 more people it if anything it'll actually probably help them get it you know fight for a larger budget sure by more people actually going through that process and i i put it off a couple of years after getting out and i regret that me too yeah same but once once i got through and did it i'm like i should have done this sooner yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. I should have done it the day I got out of the army. Yep. Anyway, well, that that's that's my my message. I I just I hope people go out there and do it. it it'll only help them. Well, Seth, we appreciate you coming on, man. It's been a really good conversation to have with you. You're our first guest who has not been in the platoon, uh, and it's mm-hmm. a different job so it's been really cool to get that different perspective into the mix so that we can start to really flesh out this picture and get this different angles on it so we appreciate you i appreciate you guys doing this and uh the work you guys are putting into it doing the interviews i i've enjoyed this i enjoy seeing your updates you guys are putting out Uh, keep up the great work you guys are doing an awesome job thanks man all right have a good one